Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name is Tom Rablick and thank you for joining me for this particular podcast, the first podcast of 2021. And we begin the year with, uh, in a rather disruptive kind of way, because as I uh, as I planned for this particular recording, a particular podcast, we've had various events in the United States that have highlighted the very fragile nature of democracy, the very fragile nature of aspects of society, um, and the very real threat of the way in which people who want to disrupt their countries, their political systems, um, pose. Now, today I'm joined with someone who, by someone who's uniquely placed to have a deep and meaningful conversation on some of these issues. Steve Kalala is the founder and the executive chairman of a charitable foundation called the Institute for Economics and Peace. They do a lot of research work, whether it be reports and consulting and research, into a raft of, a raft of matters to do with society and the economy across the globe. Now, Steve's also been an, an author. He's written a book called Peace in the Age of Chaos, and the title could not be more appropriate. The book is out there, ready for you to buy and have a have a look at. It's published by Hardy Grant. But that's enough from me. Um, I'll inter- I'll turn over to Steve now. Steve, thank you for joining me. And um, it's an interesting time in which we have this conversation, isn't it? Oh, it certainly is. If we're looking at the events of the the last twelve months, who twelve months ago would have thought that we would have seen a, the lockdowns and the, the global chaos we've seen through COVID nineteen, let alone the recent election cycle in the United States. I think it's a, a, the the latter point we can touch on in a little while, but. Uh, you, we're talking to you at a point in time where you're uh, head of a, an institute that that does a lot of work, but you've you've lived a longer life than just uh, just being at the head of uh, a research body, if I can call it that. How would you describe your your, your professional career? Um, if you had to put it on the back of an envelope, Steve? Well, my background's actually in business. So, you know, I started off really as a computer programmer and I developed two international IT companies. Uh, the first one ended up publicly listed on NASDAQ and the second one on the Australian Stock Exchange. And that was on the back of the two uh, computer programs uh, which I developed. And they, uh, that was an interesting uh, business life because the work was all globally based. Uh, so Integrated Research, which is currently listed on the Australian Stock Exchange, have founded that. But it does 95% of its business outside of Australia from about 40 different countries around the world. So I spent my life travelling. I guess I'd say in many ways I'm a uh, global citizen. I've probably spent gee, 35% of my life just travelling the globe with a suitcase. From there, sort of, I set up a so I got made good money out of all of that, and from there, I set up a foundation called the Charitable Foundation, and uh, that works with the poorest of the poor, does interventions which are substantially life changing, and aims at touching as many people as possible. So, to date, we've done about 
200 different projects in the developing world, uh, direct beneficiaries now about 3.6 million people. So it's a reasonable size. But when you work with the poorest of the poor, you end up in some of the most violent places in the world. So because that's where the poorest people is. And as I'm looking at this, I've started to realise just the interconnection between conflict, violence and poverty. And so that got me thinking. And then I was in, it would have been, gee, it would have been 16 years ago. I was in northeast Kivu in the Congo, which is one of the more violent places in the world. And I was walking through and then I started to think, gee, what are the most peaceful nations in the world? Is there anything I can learn from them which I could bring into the projects I was doing? It was a bit of a fantasy question, I suppose, Tom. It was just, you know, those kind of things which rumble in the back of your mind. And so I got back to Sydney, searched the internet, and couldn't find a list of the countries in the world by their peacefulness. And that's how the Global Peace Index was born. But that poses a very fundamental and simple question. Because if a simple businessman like myself can be walking through Africa and wonder what are the most peaceful nations in the world and hasn't been done, then how much do we actually know about peace? Being a businessman, I know for a fact, in business, if you can't measure something, can you truly understand it? And if you can't measure it, how do you even know whether your actions are helping you or hindering you in achieving your goals? You simply don't. You've got a range of different things you look at uh, in your reports and just one glance through your website you know, tells me there are people who are going to have a lot of homework to do when they discover where they need to go to look at some of your material. Um, you've got the Global Peace Index, but you've also got an ecological threat register You've got a global terrorism index. I mean, there's a whole raft of things. Did these uh, reports just evolve over time as you expanded the work of the Institute? Well, yes, that's exactly the way it happened. We started out with the Global Peace Index. Uh, after I got this epiphany, if you like, uh, while being in the, uh, the Congo, I then got back to Sydney uh, got hold of a few friends who worked in the area and none of them could come up with the anything or anything which sort of ranked the nations of the world by their peacefulness. So what we, what I did then was then I had a friend who used to run the Economist Intelligence Unit in London. And he said, well, they're pretty good producers of indexes. So I got hold of them. So had the philosophy around how I wanted to do the index. So they then sort of worked with them brought in an expert panel to determine what the indicators should be and from there then got the Economist Intelligence Unit to produce the index. And so this is a true entrepreneurial story because it's just like water going down a cliff, I suppose. You never know where the individual drops are going, but you know where they'll finish. And so then I thought, well, it's no point in just doing the index. What I need to do is publicise it. So I then hired a PR company in London uh, to do the uh, PR for it, and it turned out to be a global success. So it's ended up on the, uh, everything from Fox News to CNN to BBC uh, World News with the first release. And uh, so from there I could see that the concept of measuring peace had a global resonance. 
So then at that point, then originally I was going to put it into a university. But as I went round and looked at the various universities, and I had plenty which were interested in taking it, I just didn't think they had the entrepreneurial skill to be able to get the thing out and uh, get the traction which I wanted to see. So from there, then I established the Institute for Economics and Peace to put the index in. But once I got there, I realised like we'd spent, we don't actually uh, spend much time studying peace. We spend a lot of time studying violence, but not much time on peace. And there's an analogy here. I felt that the study of peace was really important. And what you find from studying peace, you come up to different conclusions and different outcomes than if you're studying violence or how to stop violence. So good analogies with health, great breakthroughs with pathology. If we look at the people today, we're probably not going to die of a heart attack young. We're solving cancer. So the study of pathology is really important. But to stay healthy and virile, you're not going to learn that through studying someone on their deathbed. It's things like right exercise, a correct mental disposition, good diet. They're the things which will keep you healthy. And it's similarly, yeah. similar to societies. So you've got to study the healthy societies to understand how to have the resilience so you don't have the violence. It's, a, it's an interesting um, point that where we kind of segue into I guess some of the some of the issues related to terrorism. Um, you released a report late last year looking at global terrorism. I've had a kind of look at it. The rankings look uh, interesting. They're an interesting guide. What are the principal concerns you've got when you look at the world today? Um, given your remarks earlier on about the fact that some of the most well, you know, impoverished countries where wealth is concerned uh, are the places that are the most violent. What are the things that concern you right now about the state of uh, global terrorism? Well, if we're just looking at terrorism, that's only just one slice of, if you like, a, a global violence. But if we're looking at terrorism, terrorism in the modern age peaked in 2016. So it's been falling for the last four years. And in fact, the the deaths through terrorism now are 52% lower than what they were in 2016. So they dropped from roughly 36,000 deaths per annum down to just under 18,000 deaths per annum. And so if we look at it, 90% of those deaths occur in conflict zones. And so now if we really want to stop the terrorism, the bulk of it, what we've got to do is stop a lot of the uh, conflicts going on in the world. So in 2019, the most number of deaths recorded through terrorism, which were in Afghanistan, uh, and they were predominantly the Taliban, but also the Cohesion uh, chapter of Islamic State. Now, what we've seen, and that big drop in terrorism came down to uh, two factors, and the first is the defeat of ISIL in uh, Syria and Iraq, and the second thing was the uh, Boko Haram in Nigeria. But what we can see, and this is where the concern is moving forward, what we can see is the centre of gravity has shifted from the Middle East to sub-Saharan Africa, particularly the Sahel and Horn of Africa, 
regions. So where these various Islamic groups, which would say that they're loyal to Islamic State, are now operational. And so if we're looking at seven of the ten countries which had the biggest increases in terrorism, they all reside in the uh, Sahel and the Horn of Africa. And so it's, and that's really where we can see the uh, rising uh, levels of uh, terrorism. But what compounds that even further is when we start to look at the uh, ecological threats. So ecological threats would be things like lack of water, lack of food, uh, increased uh, cyclonic activity, increased droughts, increased floods, uh, uh, rising sea levels. So we start to look at that and we start to look at these countries affected by uh, uh, steep rises in ter- terrorism in the Sahel. What we'll find is that uh, many of them also got ecological crises. So a number of these countries are expected to double their population in the next 30 years. So you've got this nexus of the unstable a, uh, political uh, climates, rising Islamist or terrorist organisations or conflict, along with the future uh, implosion of the ecologies in these environments as well, without uh, without uh, I guess concerted efforts from the international community. So that's one of the areas I see as a real issue. So the terrorism something is not something which incurs in a vacuum on its own. There are numbers of uh, things which go around with it. And similarly, you can see it in the West or in some of these destabilised countries. I guess the second thing which really concerns me if we're moving forward so if we're looking at the age of COVID-19, let's say, we've got vaccines currently rolling out, but the vaccines aren't going to be the end of COVID-19. So you can go to a lot of countries in the world and a lot of the people aren't going to be able to afford vaccines. that will be right through Africa, many parts of Asia and parts of the Middle East. You're also going to find there's a whole whole series of countries where the population are adverse to having taking vaccines in the first place. So let's say if you look at Japan, only something like 30% of the population there get vaccinated because they, they don't believe in vaccination. And the vaccination, the vaccines we're seeing coming onto the market now at best are 90% are successful in stopping one getting COVID-19. And so if you look at that, what that means is when we're bringing anyone in, we open the borders and we bring anyone in from overseas, they're still going to have to quarantine for two weeks. So the big thing coming out of this is, other than the health concerns, which are serious, is the economic concerns. So this means we've got at least for the next five years suppressed economic conditions moving forward. Uh, the World Bank recently, uh, last week, uh, came out with the statement they expect uh, this decade to be what they'd term a lost decade. In places like Latin America, they don't expect to see any economic growth. Now, what this will do, this will come come in and it'll fuel uh, issues in Western societies. At the moment, they're pumped on economic steroids with all the various uh, support packages going on, but they can't hold up forever. And so without 
the economy is looking like they can get back to the interna- international integrations which they've had in the past, you'd expect economic growth to be sub- really subdued. And I think this is going to play back into a whole series of different issues, you know, your Western democracies as elsewhere. I think one of the other things in the Western democracies, I guess the wheels of democracy have been getting squeaky over the last decade. <laughs> and so if we're looking at things like, let's say, group grievances, uh, the acceptance of the rights of other people, uh, you can see that through uh, immigration, uh, particularly in Europe, uh, like concept of fractionalised elites. That's where the elites in the societies fight between themselves. You can see that in spades in the US or you can see it with the Brit exit debate. Perceptions of corruption, I say perceptions are on the increase. Uh, faith in democracy is on the decrease. And also concepts of uh, working, workers' conditions have been eroding, as has uh, wages. That comes at a time where you're seeing the rich, even in this uh, economic downturn we're in now, getting richer, which you can see through rising property prices, rising stock markets. This creates the background conditions, unless they're really addressed, for societal conflict moving forward. In fact, if you went back over the last decade, you'd find that demonstrations and riots globally have increased by 246%. Just think of the yellow vests, let's say, in France. So I think these background conditions are what really concerns me as we're moving in to the 2020s. This is a convenient point in which to segue into a couple of recent developments. Uh, I've spent a lot of time as a result of reading and then just writing about things uh, related to sort of the Middle East and terrorism, and we're dealing with, in some and Africa, we're dealing with countries that are relatively poor. And then we flip our focus and we pivot to the United States. Um, how would you explain to to somebody who doesn't quite understand what's going on in the US what transpired last week? Well, I think last week was an event, uh, a very serious event, and one sort of really worthy of focus. But really, events come out of the path of a history of a uh, culture and a society. So what we've done at the Institute for Economics and Peace, I've got all this in the book, what we've done is we've used a whole range of different analysis uh, where we look at a, a, uh, 25,000 different data sets, indexes, attitudinal surveys to determine the factors which are most closely related to highly peaceful societies, and that's called positive peace. Now, you can turn that background into an index, and now you've got the ability to be able to measure the progression of society on these measures of peace. These measures of peace or positive peace are also associated with a whole lot of other things which we think are important. So 
society's high and positive peace have higher uh, GDP or per capita income. The societies come out better on measures of well-being and happiness, better on ecological measures, better on measures of inclusion and such. And particularly, it's particularly good at measuring the resilience of a society to conflicts. So we went back the last decade, what we find is the US has had the 10th largest fall in the world in positive peace. And so these are the background conditions which caused President Trump to get elected in the first place. And he was there to drain the swamp, okay, if you remember it. He's appealed to the uh, yeah, yeah, the poor working class people who felt they were alienated uh, by, yeah, yeah, the, by society, both the Republicans and the Democrats. You see, it was never a real Democrat. Uh, uh, he was just able, through uh, his ability to articulate uh, 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 the uh, grievances of the masses to be able to get elected. And so the swamp never drained in the US. People's incomes never really didn't improve. And so what you've got is you've got this trajectory going on there of dissatisfaction with the system, which gets reflected through positive peace. And that's accumulated in what we can see happening in the US. So moving forward, what we need is a radical transformation. It's just as true in Europe and to a lesser extent true here in Australia. We need a different way of being able to envisage how our societies work because the democracy is getting squeaky wheels. That's pretty damn obvious. And the US is the one which has advanced the most. Societies can move through tipping points. And the tipping point which you're seeing in the US is whether it really will end up still being a democracy another decade from now. So the next four years are really, really critical uh, in the US. And it isn't a matter so much of impeaching a, a, a President Trump or anything like that. It's a matter of being able to address these fundamental issues of inequality and the breakdown of civility within the societies. So as long as the Republicans and the Democrats can't find common ground, they'll keep fighting at any cost. They'll never be able to bring in the policies necessary to address the fundamental issues in the US. And much of that comes back to falling working conditions and falling wages the middle middle class and below. Tell me, you also have another problem in this context, uh, and that is there are some, uh, if I can use the term, there, there are some bad actors uh, within any society who will catch on to uh, underlying themes. You know, the, the Trump the rally last week that led subsequently to the march on the Capitol doesn't just happen because Donald Trump's there alone. There are other there are other groups that have for years been harbouring certain grievances, if we can use that term, against the society in which they live because they they believe they're you know, they're being run by traitors or they're not being well served. How much do you think those sorts of uh, those sorts of groups um, play a part in the in the general uh, you know, sort of messaging, if you like. Well, those kind of people uh, have 
there in all societies in all ages. The question in the background question, this is the one I'm trying to answer, is why do they actually get legitimacy and why do they get following in one age when they don't get following in another age? And that comes back to people following them because they're discontent. There's a concept of displaced anger, which I think is really important. <laughs> yeah. Really important because if you've got a whole lot of stress in your life, your life's not working, you're looking for someone to blame. You're looking at some way of trying to change it. And the more you feel that the system isn't going to change to meet your, your needs and requirements, the more likely you are to support radical action. And this is, I think, the uh, real underlying issue within the US. But in Peace in the Age of Chaos, I cover this. I also cover a whole lot of stories. Uh, a lot of it come out of the uh, develop, out of my experience in uh, working in places like Africa or up in Myanmar or Laos and places like that. And just the background on how these things come about. And so in a lot of ways, we need to think about our societies as systems and sort of start looking at what are those systemic effects which cause the events we don't like to arise. And I think that's for me, is really the transformational change we need to think about. The positive piece, the concept I mentioned earlier on, can be that platform for transformational change. It's a way of being able to view our societies through a different lens. It's another way of being able to reinvigorate them and this is what we really need as we're moving in to the uh, the, 20, the uh, decade of the 2020s. And without it, we're just going to find that these areas of conflict are going to increase, not only in the US, but many other parts of the world, and particularly on the back of the issues, economic issues we've got, which are coming out of COVID-19. The... Other thing that I've noticed over the past decade, um, and it'll be interesting to get your thoughts on it as well, is that there's been, there appears to be a, a, a greater tendency for um, a, a polarised public discourse. Um, I it not just due to the sort of advent of social media, but for in the way in which people generally communicate with each other. Um, there's a bit of shouting going on from various sides, and not enough meeting in the middle, uh, from where I, from my perception. How do you see the way in which people communicate now, and is that part of the problem that you you? Uh, I'm trying to address. Yeah, most definitely. So if we're looking at the concept of positive peace, it's sort of when it's brought down into a simple practical form so it can be utilised, it comes down to this eight-pillar topology, if you like. And one of those is free flow of information. And so it's really important that people within societies get the correct information. Otherwise, you can't make informed decisions. And so part of the issue we've got going on is that we're finding uh, information, particularly when it's put into the relevance of politics, is fractioning along lines. This comes back to those concepts of fractionalised elites. Elites start shouting at each other without being able to hear the validity in the other person's 
uh, message. And this isn't left or right, which is the uh, correct, it's both sides. So there's a real need for somehow to be able to find some middle ground in the middle and like that's really that's that, that's a mindset it's a it's a change of the uh, people within society and now some countries like finland for example their their approach to this is not so much the censoring of information it's more about teaching kids in school how to determine the veracity of information. And that way you're not saying, well, this information's good and that information's bad. You're just teaching them how to think appropriately about what is good and what is bad information because a lot of the time we start censoring, it gets very, very difficult to know where, where to stop. The um, you've, you've made a really valuable point about education there at... And a lot of the stories that I've read through my studies uh, in relation to terrorism and other things, um, and I use stories um, particular uh, a specific word because you know, societies tell stories to each other and sometimes those stories lead to bad things happening. Um, how much of a role more broadly does education play in fixing uh, some of the kinks in, our, in 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 society? In your view, I think so, think education is important, but just relying on education and thinking that that is going to fix the problems of society is nowhere near enough. So if we come back and we look at this positive peace framework, a high levels of human capital is part of it. Education is part of it, but we also know that if we, when looking at it systemically, if you focus on a couple of things, and a lot of societies do this, focus on, educa- focus on education, and then focus on business conditions, okay, improving business conditions and improving education, that it's got a tendency to more likely lead to conflict than alleviate conflict if nothing else is taken into account. So in it, you've got to take into account how well government's functioning. You've got to look at what is the relationships between groups in society, how fractured are they. You need to look at the free flow of information, which I met mentioned earlier on. Uh, what's the corrupt, how's corruption in a society going? Because corruption's really corrosive. And so there's a number of different factors which you need to bring together to be able to see or get a society which is progressing in the directions which we'd like it to go. And that comes back to this concept of looking at a society systemically rather than just through a single prism or a single lens. Steve, uh, I'm very mindful of the time and grateful for your uh, for joining me today to, to talk through some really important issues. Uh, if people wanted to know more about the Institute of Economics and Peace, where would they? Where should they go on the internet? Well, there's a few places you can go. The first one is economicsandpeace.org. The second one, which is one which we use for mainly uh, yeah, broadcasting out into the world is the vision visionofhumanity.org. Or you could just do a simple search on the Global Peace Index and you'll get there as well. Or you could just search on Peace in the Age of Chaos and that will take you down there as well. 
But the work we do gets a lot of publicity globally. In the last 12 months, we've had over 20 billion media impressions globally. We've probably, in that period of time, had over 5,000 different news articles and over 1 billion social media impressions. And that's in over 120 different countries around the world world. So the work we do, it's all covered in peace in the age of chaos, but that work we do has got global resonance. A work's quoted by Secretary Generals of the UN. Terrorism index is used by just about every major security organisation in the world. And so the work we've got is having an influence and the stuff on positive peace and the global peace index these days including oh, over a thousand university courses around the world. And uh, and I take it that people can get a copy of your book, Peace in the Age of Chaos, uh, from most bookstores and, and from retailers online? Yes, you can get it from me. Uh, you order it from most books, bookstores. Uh, it's also available online, so you can go to Amazon. You can pick it up that way or go to the website, Peace in the Age of Chaos, pick it up pick it up there you can also pick it up so it can be downline loaded for kindle and we've got the e-published versions as well and that's uh, i can recommend it because I've, I've had a look at the book and there's a lot of food for thought uh, at a point in time when we really need to reflect on issues uh, steve thank you so much for sparing uh, a bit of your time today to talk through some significant issues my pleasure, Tom. Really enjoyed the conversation. It's been good fun. Okay, thank you, and we hope we can do it again. And to the listeners, uh, hope you've enjoyed the podcast, and there'll be a few more coming in the next weeks and months ahead. Great. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Tom.